As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Hey, Tracy, remember our episode from a few weeks ago with uh, Phil Helmuth? Uh, yes. Yes, player? I do. Gosh, it seems like so long ago. Yeah, but I don't think it was. I think it was just like a month ago or something. Anyway, wow. not to you know pat ourselves on the shoulder, but you know that was one of the most popular episodes <laughs> in uh, Bloomberg podcast history. You're definitely patting yourself on the shoulder there, Joe. No, no, given I'm not. This is, that you're interested in poker, right? That's why we had him on. Yeah, but that's not why I'm not bringing that up to congratulate ourselves or anything like that. Um, I, there's actually a serious point behind that, behind its popularity, which is that a lot of the uh, finance crowd that uh, we ostensibly target and which we do target at Bloomberg is really into stuff about gambling and games and games of chance. Well, that's true. And I mean, there's clearly an overlap there as well, right? Yeah, there's definitely an overlap, definitely lessons that could be applied from finance to gambling, lessons from gambling and betting that could be applied uh, back to finance. And I think uh, from a personality standpoint, you get a lot of people obviously in the finance financial industry who just sort of uh, also are very interested in the gambling side. And of course, the history of finance and gambling are deeply intertwined. Are you telling me that we're going to talk about poker again? No. Good news. <laughs> we are not talking about poker on this episode. Although, actually, I, I think maybe our guest is, likes poker, but I'm not sure. Um, but we are going to be talking about someone who has uh, been active in both sides of the uh, finance and gambling divide. Okay. Um, but gambling on what exactly? This time, uh, gambling not on cards, uh, but on sports. Oh, Joe. Joe, what? if it's not if it's not chess or poker, then it's sports. Uh yes, it's sports. Uh okay. so let's jump right into it. The guest on our episode today is uh Joe Pita. He was a trader at Lehman for many years, was involved in various things, including hedge funds there. He's at a hedge fund now, but in between those two things, he uh, was also uh, figured out a way to bet on baseball, and he wrote a book about uh, betting on baseball called Trading Bases. So I think a perfect guest to talk about the two worlds. 
I'm going to caveat this with with my usual thing, which is I know nothing about <laughs> baseball or sports betting. Uh, so I look forward to learning about it, Joe. You know what, Tracy? It's never, you know, you always say that, but it never proves to be a problem because you always ask fantastic questions. And so I'm confident that uh, this discussion will be no different. Ah, okay. That's very sweet. Let's <laughs> let's have him on. Joe Pita, thank you very much for joining us. Joe and Tracy, it's a pleasure to be on. It's, uh, you know, I, I'm on a lot of uh, because of the topic of the book, I end up on a lot of you know Vegas-based podcasts, et cetera, and uh, it is a pleasure to uh, be on a podcast that I know has such uh, a high uh, intellectual content. <laughs> I will try my best <laughs> to only lower it a little bit. No, no need, to, no need to uh, flatter us, uh, but we do appreciate. Was the would you, would you say that the intro was a fair characterization of your background? from banking to betting, and then now at a hedge fund? Absolutely. Uh, the book and the book itself came about literally by accident. I was uh, still working on Wall Street in, in lower Manhattan when I got run over by an ambulance uh, in New York City. And while I was laid up and in a wheelchair and I couldn't travel back to my home in San Francisco with my family, uh, while I was laid up, I had this idea uh, to write a book that more or less um, examined the critical reasoning overlap between asset management, um, the moneyballization of baseball, uh, and sports betting. Uh, those, it was clearly a write-what-you-know book for me, um, but you definitely touched on those in the intro. Uh, I can tell you when the book was up for, was being passed around publishers' houses, uh, one of the editors that very much wanted to work on it was Phil Helmuth's uh, oh. editor. Huh. He had written... Uh, play poker uh, like the pros. So yeah, there's definitely that overlap uh, between the, the audiences. So before we get into the book itself, tell us what you were doing on Wall Street before you were hit by an ambulance. And you said, you know, the your fo you started focusing on whether some of these critical reasoning and data analytical tools could be applied to sports betting. I take it then you even before this endeavor, that uh, this had already been an interest of yours? Yeah, I can tell you when it came up. I mean, certainly I'd always been a baseball fan, and the book really is a lot about baseball. It is a memoir, so it does really touch on, you know, sort of the role baseball has played in my family. My father was an immigrant, and one of the ways he mm. was he wanted to adopt, you know, show his love for America because he was saddled with an Italian name, uh, Erminio, that it instantly announced him as, you know, an outsider. Um, one of the ways he wanted to show his love for America was he loved baseball and he was going to become an English professor. You know, that ultimately hmm. was, you know, sort of his path. So baseball, I was always very interested in baseball. I had been introduced to Bill James and a lot of the sabermetric theories in the 90s and early 2000s. But it wasn't until I was with Lehman and moved from the sell side to the buy side, which of course your audience understands. I, I had moved to San Francisco to help launch a Lehman-funded uh, hedge fund. And I was challenged with, uh, as running the trading desk there, what I found was I was working with analysts and portfolio managers who had different skills. And I was really sort of challenged with how do we only 
have them do what they're good with. And, and this is one, I know one of your other guests, I know Michael Mobison, I know you're a fan mm. of his work yep. and you've had him on. And this is something he talks about a lot too. And, and, and we've talked since, you know, we've read each other's books. And, and my goal was, how do I get these guys to only do what they're good at and, you know, not degrade the value that they, that they bring to the table as either analysts or portfolio managers by doing something they're not good at. And I looked to, and I knew to sort of convince them or try to change that behavior, it was going to have to be data-driven. So I looked to the lessons of baseball. I'm like, well, baseball's already solved this. Um, and so I started using that. And so, and they were very crude tools, and, and, but it was really trying to identify, you know, not results, but skill sets. And what really struck me, especially then after I got injured when I started thinking about it is, you know, Moneyball was such a huge hit as a, as a book and as a theme. And, and it was really, it was embraced by the business world. And I'm, I was thinking to myself, like the whole industry of Major League Baseball is worth, you know, maybe $30 billion. You know, it, it's probably an average of a billion dollars a team. There are single financial institutions worth more than that. But why? is baseball so much better at using its data to identify skills and not luck, you know, than, than the financial industry is when there's so much more at stake. So that was sort of an underlying theme of the book. So, Joe, can we back up for a second? Because whenever people talk about sports analytics, they always eventually start talking about baseball and um, Moneyball and things like that. What is it about baseball specifically that seems to lend itself to analyzing facts and figures and numbers? Yeah, Tracy, that's a great question. There's, there's really two parts of it. One, it's data-rich. The history is data-rich. It has been results in baseball beyond just the final score, but results of each play or really each pitch have been recorded for more than 100 years. Um, so you've got this data-rich environment, but most importantly, when you compare baseball to other sports, is baseball is really a series of one-on-one matchups, 60 or 70 one-on-one matchups, uh, a game disguised as a team sport. So I can with very uh, high confidence say something like, you know, um, and I use this example in my book, Randy Johnson, um, who was a prolific strikeout pitcher, um, played in both leagues, the American and National League. Uh, He played for five or six different teams. He won Cy Youngs, I think, for three different teams. And he pitched to different, you know, catchers. Despite that all, despite all those other variables, he struck out roughly one-third of the batters he faced every year. And you could count on that despite all those changing variables. There is no way we could look at Tom Brady and say – so when we evaluate Tom Brady, we have to say things like Tom Brady – running a Bill Belichick offense, um, play action faking to these running backs, throwing to these receivers will complete 60% of his passes. But you could not move him to another team and you know and model his performance exactly the same way because it's so much more. There's so much more interdependence. Um, baseball, and that's why I found it the best to create models for betting, Baseball is very pure in that it really is one-on-one matchups, like I say, disguised as a team game. That is a, that is a great explanation of why uh, sports analytics uh, is so, you know, so much of it comes back to baseball. So I read Moneyball, and you know, I want to get into where you get your edge. Because I read Moneyball, 
And I, you know, the whole idea that I took away, which is that a lot of these uh, scouts of players and general managers had some sort of biases about what made a good player or not. And maybe they just had some uh, rules of thumb and heuristics to look at a player and evaluate them. And they really weren't data driven. And that when the, uh, the nerds, so to speak, took over and really started looking at the data that they found that these old, uh, some of this old baseball wisdom wasn't really matched by results. So there was a clear gap between what the data said and what the uh, the received wisdom said. Now, taking this over to the world of betting and going to a casino and placing a bet, and obviously the house and the casino is uh, sort of data-driven. Uh, what, well, where, it, where does the edge come from specifically when you sort of port this over to the world of gambling? It's an evolving edge, and it's certainly... Uh has gotten smaller or it changes. It evolves. Certainly, you know, just using sort of the, the money ball as an example, um, back then in the book, on-base percentage was undervalued, right? Uh, so there was value to picking up players that got on base a lot, even if they didn't have the other counting stats like um, home runs and RBIs that were deemed important back then. Uh, and, of course, that's shifted. There is no you – know, across Major League Baseball now, there is no um, – you know, there's – on-base percentage is not undervalued. However, defense may have been undervalued five or six years ago. Um, so there, there's always a pendulum. And any time – and, of course, sports betting or, or there's a price for each team every night. You know, and as you know from financial markets – while prices do incorporate a lot of known information, uh, they also incorporate emotion. Um, and you can see that there is always, uh, when it comes to, say, postseason betting or futures betting, there is always a, I almost call it a, a, a an, an Hermes-type premium on the Yankees or the Cubs. You know, there's a retail markup. Um, so you can find small edges there, but specifically when you are looking at single games, um, as I talked about in the book five years ago there, um, and this really goes back to sort of what, what Mobison says, there is still an element of looking at past results when pricing the current market. Uh, and pictures, especially five years ago, um, were, very, were subject to You'd look at a pitcher's ERA, which is how many runs he gives up over a game. And that, you know, his past ERA or his current ERA for the season had a lot to do with how he might be priced in July. But if you dig deeper, there were better ways to look at what his future ERA should be. And and you do that by looking at his skill sets, not his results, because ERA is dependent on uh, the defense behind him. Um, it's dependent on the luck of sequencing, which I call cluster luck, um, in terms of, of what, what tends to be much more sticky is the skill set of what percentage of batters does he strike out, what percentage of batters does he walk, what percentage of, of hit balls are ground balls. And that can, and you will find some pictures that you will look at those inputs and you'll say, oh, you know, a regression analysis tells me he should have an ERA of upper threes instead of upper twos. So, you know, he, he might be overvalued on a single game. And, and the important thing with any, um, with any endeavor of, of capital, of course, is you want to find a small edge and then you want to put a small amount of money on it. You, you know, it's that old idea that you never want to risk tomorrow's edge by overallocating today. Um, and that's, you know, that's just, 
So, and, that, and that's, again, a, a lot of the overlap. I find that the world of gamblers um, and even poker players, they, they tend to overestimate their edge. And I tried to talk about that in the book, too, that, hey, one thing the financial industry is really good at, one thing hedge fund pros are really good at is understanding survival. Um, and then, of course, I drew the comparison to Dick Fold, who did not understand that, who had a wonderful franchise and risked it all um, you know, by overbetting on, on real estate. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So, Joe, the subtitle of your book is How a Wall Street Trader Made a Fortune Betting on Baseball. Walk us through exactly how you made your bets and how much you actually made. I will I will address that, but I will tell you we can get a little inside sort of publishing here. Um, and, and you may know this. Um, Wait, don't well, tell me they exaggerated the title. I refuse, <laughs> well, of course to, they did. I no, refuse no, to believe uh, that publishers well, would ever uh, do that. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. And you know this even from, you know, publication that, you know, bylines, the, the person who writes an article doesn't write the headline, right? And they get trapped by the headline sometimes. Well, I certainly learned from the publishing industry that the author owns everything between the covers, uh, but the cover itself, including the title, uh, belongs to the, to the publisher. Now, fortunately, the hardback cover, that was my title. Um, the, the title of the book was, was Trading Bases, a story about Wall Street gambling and baseball, not necessarily in that order. Uh, when the, when the uh, uh, paperback rights were sold, I think, to Random House, they, you know, they renamed it or they, they put the subtitle there. Um, I never wanted the focus to be on um, you know, that sort of thing, like how, how somebody made a fortune. Because for one thing, a fortune is, is, uh, is relative, right? Um, and for another, one of the things I kind of talk about in the book is that professional um, investors, they never talk about like, – you will never hear a hedge fund say, hey, we were up $2 million yesterday. You will hear them say we were up 40 basis points, right? And that is really what I try to get across in the book is it doesn't matter how little or how much money you have. The, the idea of capital allocation is the same for everyone. Well, Joe, let me let me rephrase my question then, because this is actually what I wanted to get into. So you're betting on a sport, you're betting on a particular outcome. Um, it, it seems to me like that outcome is probably going to be, you know, either win or lose. So how do you how do you risk adjust whatever return that you're actually making from sports betting? Fantastic question, because I really did d- dive into this. Um, and to, to, to the story about, you know, uh, you know, a fortune, I did for the, uh, for the epilogue of the book, I did raise a fund. It was a million-dollar fund, and I went to Vegas for the uh, summer of 2012 and actually ran a baseball betting fund, you know, in, legally in, in Vegas. And that you're, the, the idea of how much to bet on each game uh, is very important because each game's a binary event. It's, it's you're either going to, you know, it's not double because the odds of the game might be, say, two to one. Um, but you're either going to lose everything you bet or you're going to, you know, win, you know, essentially what you bet or a little more, maybe a little less, depending on the odds. 
So the idea was, what I had the idea was, okay, let's look back to the financial industry. We know um, baseball has this great, um, this idea of the replacement player. And it's, it's kind of an amorphous concept, but, um, and you hear that, you know, every player is essentially judged in the, in the money ball world by how much, how many wins they create over the replacement player. And the Tracy, replacement- re- wait, remember Tracy when we were, uh, <laughs> when we were chatting and Tracy was like, what's one thing I should know about baseball? And our colleague said, uh, the one thing you should know is war. And uh, right. that was, here you go, wins above replacement. All right, so go on. I just wanted to, sorry, oh, I wanted to perfect. jump in there and no. point out that this was something that came up in Tracy's prep for the episode. Well, if you think about the – and the, the idea is the replacement player is readily available to anyone. You could pick up this player uh, from either the minor leagues or on waivers, and any team has access to him for essentially a minimal contract. There's actually – that concept actually applies perfectly in the financial world, and that is you know, the S&P 500. That's the replacement player for every investor. That's the passive alternative that is readily available for any investor. So if you're going to pay up um, the, you know, that's if you're going to pay up for active management, right? They have to beat this passive benchmark. Well, the nice thing about the passive benchmark as well is it works as a uh, investment tool in the sense that. I know the standard deviation of returns of the S&P 500, um, and I know the expected return. So that if I'm really running a baseball fund that is truly an an alternative asset, well, I should have daily returns that either have this, you know, hopefully have a higher return than the S&P 500, but the same amount of volatility. So to get back to your question, Tracy, that was really how I played with how much should I be betting on single games was to really find Uh. that amount that gave me returns without giving me excess volatility. And what it did turn out was specifically if you looked at a slate of games in a day, there's about 15 games every day in Major League Baseball, if I identified five or six to bet on, it was rare that what I would even put 1% of the capital on one game. Usually the bets were somewhere between a third of a percent to maybe three quarters of a percent based on how much I thought there was a perceived edge. Uh, So really it was almost like I always kind of likened it to owning a roulette wheel, right? If you own the roulette wheel, if you're the house, you have a small edge and you just want to spin that wheel as many times as possible in a day. And you don't want people placing million dollar bets, right? You want them placing a whole bunch of smaller bets uh, because that's how – you know, that's where you have your edge and that's where you extract your, your gains in the end. And that was the I, I applied that same you know, capital allocation theory to to a slate of baseball games each day. All right. Well, let's just talk results for a second, though. You, you raised a million dollars for your fund. First of all, a uh, who how'd you raise the million dollars and b how'd you do? Uh, the, well, the, 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 the A is fascinating. So I handed in my book. I handed in the manuscript for the book um, after the uh, 2011 season, uh, which is what the bulk of the book is really about. It's sort of my, my like I say, my memoir of, of being injured during 2011. Uh, and I handed it in and the, the publisher, uh, Penguin, um, came back to me once I handed in the manuscript in, in March and they, they said, we love it, which was certainly satisfying to me because I was, you know, an unknown author with no works behind me. Uh, and they said, we're going to publish it in uh, March of 2013, but we're going to need something for 2012 in there. And they said, if we gave you the marketing budget for the book, would you go to Vegas and bet on baseball games for us? We kind of think that would be a, a cool pitch. And I, of course, <laughs> I, of course, said, absolutely. That, that really <laughs> does sound like fun. 
And I knew if I did that, that I really I better talk to some of my degenerate family and friends, too, and see if they wanted to uh, be involved as well. And that's how I raised a million dollars. It was essentially family and friends um, and the publisher. And that was the, the epilogue of the book. Um, in, the, in that year, I was up uh, 14% for the year in terms of, uh, of, of the fund, um, which is about what I think my edge would be. Um, the 2011 season, which was just me, you know, I was up 40%. And that's not, it was not repeatable. Just a lot went right. Um, you know, that's the old skill versus luck. The actual edge was much, much lower. And I knew that, uh, but it was a fun ride. Um, and I, I view 2012 as, as being much more indicative of what you could expect from a data-driven model, you know, that really tries to conquer uh, baseball betting. So is sports betting, is that a legitimate replacement for investing or trading more traditional financial assets? And if it is, then then what is actually the difference between trading and betting? Great to, uh, to quote George Washington in Hamilton, the musical, not yet, um, because it's uh, the epilogue of the book. I really tried to write almost as a business school case study. In this, in sort of looking at it, is is there actually a market as an alternative asset? Because one thing we do know is, if you're betting on sports or if you're investing with someone who's running a fund, we do know that it's not correlated to you know stocks and bonds. It is truly an uncorrelated asset, so it meets that requirement. What it doesn't meet, however, is there's not enough liquidity. Um, I estimated that I could have run a two, maybe $3 million fund, and that was it. Um, because past that, I couldn't have scaled up the bets. Uh, there just wasn't enough liquidity in the market to be making bets. But most importantly, and while I tried to give, while I tried to point out the ways that the financial industry can learn from baseball in the book, I also tried to point out that Vegas and specifically the, the industry of, of running sports markets could really learn a lot from Wall Street. And unfortunately, they're not there yet. It is still an antagonistic relationship between the sports book and the better, which is the way when I entered the NASDAQ market in 1995, that's the way NASDAQ trading was. It was fragmented. We were suspicious of every cu customer who walked through the door and every trade was us versus them. Once NASDAQ evolved into more of an agency market, it became the business of asset collection and bringing together buyers and sellers. And it, what, it's what poker does. Poker, you know, as, as you may know, in, the ha in, in poker, the house doesn't bet against the players. The house simply collects rents by getting the players into the same wow. room. And if sports betting ever evolved into that, it could be a huge market and it would turn into an asset gathering market as opposed to, you know, sort of what it is now, which is us first them. Um, I see that. I cannot get some of the people in the industry to to see that. And I have tried. Joe Pita, he's the author of Trading Bases and he's currently at Kingsford Capital. That was a great discussion. Loved that last bit about uh, market structure, that lesson there. Really appreciate you coming on Odd Lots. Joe and Tracy, thank you so much for having me. So, Tracy, another episode about gambling and sports, <laughs> which you claim to not know anything about, but you did know stuff and you asked great questions. 
Uh, well, I, I don't know that much about it. But what fascinates me is it, it's really that question of, you know, like what makes a market and what's the difference between betting and trading and investing and where's the overlap? And I thought Joe did a, a really, really good job of identifying that. Yeah, I, I did too. I mean, I really liked his answer about sort of how to, A, where he found the statistical edge from sports betting and, you know, basically there's still a lot of emotion, home team biases, uh, streak biases, things like that, that you can spot in the odds of a game. And then that last uh, answer sort of about the difference between the sports book at a casino, which he described as antagonistic, versus a poker room where they just want to, you know, sort of get liquidity and bring people together. Sort of very interesting lesson back to think about how uh, sort of more traditional financial markets are structured. Yeah, for sure. So, Joe, when are we going to go on our um, crayfish-eating, poker-playing, uh, baseball-watching tour of uh, the U.S.? We got to do that very soon. But until then, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you can find Joe on Twitter at at MagicRatSF and our producer Sarah Patterson on Twitter at Sarah Pat with two T's. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.